This is In The Cut, and hello, I'm Jesse. Uh, I have Aaron here again. We're going to be talking about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. And the format we've got here, as I've mentioned before, means we're taking a look at the whole movie. So even if you are a uh, horrible person who doesn't care about movie spoilers, you're still going to get more out of this if you have seen the movie or, or just rewatched the movie or seen it recently. We're getting set up, though, and we should have you covered. We will have links to all the different ways you can watch the movie online at inthecut.org, the site there. But I'd love to just uh, get going here. Hi, Aaron. How's it going? Good. I'm looking forward to getting into Prince of Darkness with you. Uh, I hadn't seen it before. You had seen it when you were younger? I had, and I gave it a rewatch, um, you know, within the last couple of months. And then I just watched it again uh, just now. I just just finished it up about half an hour ago. Oh, great. But yeah, I probably saw it the first time when I was, you know, 12 or 13 and watching you know, everything John Carpenter had ever made over and over again. Eh. John, you can always tell a John Carpenter movie because he titles it John Carpenter's Name <laughs> of Movie. Yes. I think that was... Pretty will... easy to find. Yeah. I mean, he did make Dark Star. He did make Dark Star. <laughs> get, I'm going to get Which... that connection right out of the way immediately because I have yeah. to tie everything back to Dark Star, my favorite movie. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to talk about Dark Star at, this, at some point. I think we are probably going to have to. Yeah. There's a couple like that that are like almost elephant in the room style movies. <laughs> so I want to dive into this movie, but before we do, I don't think it was last time, but the time before we forgot to do scratch off lottery tickets. <sighs> so this show really is having trouble paying for itself at this point because of my negligence there. So I went and I got us some scratch off lottery tickets for this time um, so we can scratch them off and fund the show because that's what we have instead of sponsors. And I have some really bad news for you. Uh-oh. Do you, are you sitting down? Is there no Jungle Jim? Jungle Jim has been discontinued. Fuck me. I don't know. Can we keep doing the show? It makes me so happy that you guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> I guessed it, but I think I mispronounced the word Jim. <laughs> That's okay. When you were describing Jungle Jim's pith helmet, I thought you said piss helmet, and I commented on it. Huh. Most of our most of our great memories about doing this show are around Jungle Jim. Yeah, I don't know. Should we Should we keep going? Keep doing this? It's hard to know if we should cancel the show or not. I do have Cool Nines, which is one that we had before. I do have Caddy Cash. And the new one is Scratch and Sniff Coffee Cash. Ooh. Which I think, when I'm scratching it off, I may be able to smell coffee. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's exciting. So, as is our st- style, uh, I'll do one for each of us at the beginning, and then we'll do the big one at the end. And then we'll win a million dollars and this show will pay for itself. All right. Then we can definitely quit. <laughs> so Cool Nines or Caddy Cash? Which one do you want to be your scratch off? Is this, does Caddy Cash have cats? You asked last time if it had cats. And it's <laughs> no, it's a gopher like um, like in the movie Caddyshack. Uh, Caddy Cash. Cash. Yeah, that's bullshit. I'm going with the Nines. Cool Nines. Okay. 
So cool nines works like this. There's a, a cool number that you scratch off, and then you scratch off five other numbers. If any of them match your cool number, you win the pr corresponding prize. That sounds a little complicated. I'm going to tell you your cool number, and then you just root for that number to come up again, okay? Okay. Your cool number is six. The first one I scratched off right. was six. You already won a dollar. All right. You got... See, I was rooting. You got four more chances to win. You, you're really good at these. I know what to root for. I'm rooting for six. There's another six. Shit, yeah. That's another That's triple sixes. I know. I scratched off Prince th of Darkness. three numbers, and it's six, six, six. Prince of Darkness. Woo. <laughs> We're, this is going to be a fucking good one. I wasn't sure about this one because I'm having these throat <laughs> problems that I'm sure you can hear. But now I'm fucking in the groove with this whole episode. Ten. Six. It's another six. That one's four dollars. Uh, and right. another that six. Holy shit, no one has ever won this much on a scratch-off lottery ticket <laughs> in the history of the world. It kind of fucked up our Prince of Darkness thing, Yeah, though. but still, the first line is just three sixes still. <laughs> so your cool number was six. You have five numbers to scratch off, each which comes with a prize if it matches. And four of those five matched. That's pretty good. What is our total winnings? seven dollars on that one. Oh my. For a $1 investment. That's good. I'm going to get a, you a limousine to take you to the recording studio that we're now going to buy. <laughs> I'm going to scratch off caddy cash for me. No luck. I got two trophies, but not three of anything. Hmm. I'm still high on yours, though. I'm really glad about how that one worked out. Another week of not having to worry about actually somehow paying for this in any real way. Woo! I really like John Carpenter. I think that you probably grew up with him more than I did because I was pretty late to the game with like R-rated movies and stuff when I was younger. Um, yeah, and he, he was definitely, um, when I was introduced to uh, horror movies and R-rated movies and all that. I think he and Clive Barker uh, also have just a really distinct style from that era that's really immediately recognizable just in how the how the colors are and how the camera works and just a atmospherically is just you can place the decade really easily oh, and when that music comes in you know like just <laughs> just the opening credits and it's just that john carpenter bass slide or whatever boom, boom. Mm -hmm. it's fantastic <laughs> <laughs> john carpenter of course scores all his movies he's a little i was thinking about it and he's a little bit like me where he's really likes to do everything himself mm -hmm. often to the detriment of the project <laughs> I mean, he's it's it's a signature of his the music and stuff in it, and sometimes it works better than others. There's almost never a time where it's like he's the best person in the world to be scoring this. Yeah, good. I just I can't imagine those movies with any other music. Yeah, it's I true. Mean, that's that's still kind of like the platonic horror movie music for me. Yeah, the music is used over the opening credits, kind of you know nicely and, and in his signature way and. 
And then it take, kind of takes a back seat for a lot of the movie until you get into the last third of the movie when it just starts and never stops. <laughs> it just drones on and on and on for the last 40 minutes of the movie nonstop. And it really, it kind of wanted it to shut up already. <laughs> I was into it. Okay. <laughs> it really is, I think in this movie, it really was like just one baseline and then a few Casio notes over and over again. Right. Yeah, he wrote one song for this film and had a lot of confidence in it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I love John Carpenter's music, but that may not be a uh, logical thing. That may just be... I wouldn't say I love it, but I would say I'm really fond of it. <laughs> like, John Carpenter's the kind of guy... And I was thinking about this when I, I actually got a chance to listen to the director's commentary for this piece. It's hilarious and for several reasons. I mean, I don't know if it's really worth just everybody run out and listen to it type of thing. <laughs> but it just, I really got a kick out of it because he's such just like, you know, when you watch a lot of someone's movies and you start to think that you know them, mm -hmm. like personally, even though you usually really don't at all, just kind of a persona or whatever, that the who you think John Carpenter is, is exactly who he is. <laughs> he doesn't know why he gets to make these movies either. He just really enjoys it. <laughs> And he's like buddies with everyone else who works on the film, and it's all just like super low key. And have you ever seen? Just, oh, sorry, go ahead. Footage of him uh, recording the music. No, I imagine him hunched over a keyboard in a dark room, though. Is he? No, it's it's he just has his, you know. I mean, he's just his dorky beardy guy in his dorky beardy recording studio with his dorky beardy friends, being really serious about <laughs> this music, and it's been uh, I don't know. Does I he have a ponytail? It. At some points in his life, he does. <laughs> I don't. I'm not even thinking about a specific piece of footage. The funniest. The funniest thing is in the in the commentary is he keeps like it's him and one of the actors, mm -hmm. Peter Jason, who plays the <clears throat> one of the older guys in the movie. Who, who he kind of looks like Meatloaf looked in Fight Club. Right. <laughs> it's the two of them recording the commentary track, and John Carpenter, who wrote and directed this movie keeps asking Peter Jason what's going on in the plot. <laughs> it's fucking, to me, it's hysterical. It, it, he's just like, what? why did that guy do that? Or like, what's... <laughs> what are they going to do here? I don't understand. <laughs> and I think he's watching it with the sound off, which is when he's recording the commentary, which is kind of part of his confusion. And I think he hasn't seen it for like 10 years or something. But he's just really like... So I guess these guys are like zombies or something. <laughs> Who knows what's going on here? He says at one point. <laughs> <laughs> There's this swarming insect scene and, and Peter Jason says, were those real bugs? And, uh, and, and John Carpenter says, oh yeah. And then just a long pause and he says, what a disgusting movie. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of gross bug seeds. So we could start with the kind of the cast and characters. Okay. Pretty awful. Pretty broad spectrum of acting, I think, among the students. Oh, the adults, I thought, were pretty good. I liked their teacher with the kind of the lazy eye. I liked the head priest guy. The students were mostly bad and some okay, some really, like, cringeworthy. <laughs> yeah, some really bad uh, dialogue writing. I think this is one of the few uh, movies that John Carpenter wrote the dialogue for. Yeah, I mean, the romantic dialogue is, is weird in a way that no movie ha I've noticed being weird like this. You kind of get the sense of why John Carpenter doesn't really put women in his movies, like, ever. 
because he dislikes them. Like he has either zero or one woman in pretty much every movie I could think of that he did. Like, yeah, the main romantic subplot. I mean, it was almost like a sexual harassment, you know, introduction to why academia is awful for women, <laughs> but then presented as a, a wacky, wacky romance. Yeah, I started. I actually got to the point where I started writing down loony shit that people said. <laughs> In this movie? Was it mostly, uh... Walter? Walter, that's the guy. The Asian guy? From Little China, yeah. 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 (laughs) Every time he's like, I'm making a joke. (laughs) They're so fucking weird. And it's funny because they act, like, as far as the writing goes, the people act in a pretty sane way. Really, Mm -hmm. like, almost every reaction to the crazy situation is totally believable. Like, it's way above par for Hollywood how these how these students react like they kind of they're a little freaked out when there's a little bit of weirdness but they're sort of reasonable about it uh, they have a meeting about just like leaving and stuff I mean there's a lot of bits in the writing that I really think that they act like their what their choices they make are really reasonable and oh so yeah good uh, that's one of my kind of favorite favorite things about the movie is you know it really is a movie about very rational people uh, you know encountering a very irrational situation and uh, yeah well put but then they, when they open their mouth, it's just like fucking cuckoo. <laughs> so yeah. the guy, the guy, one of the first things he says to the girl, confirmed sexist and proud of it. <laughs> like what? Well, one of the first things he says to her is, I'd really like to talk to you about your research over dinner. <laughs> so you remember when the guy with the mullet is, goes outside and he's trying to tell him that the whole thing is like a fool's errand? Uh-huh. But instead of using a phrase like fool's errand, he says, this is caca. <laughs> I do. And then, and then there's a long pause, it. and then he mutters caca to himself again. Uh-huh. But um, you're right that Walter gets all of the loony ones. I wrote down like a bunch of them. And it's basically what he does in the movie. Like his his purpose is to, I guess, also to doubt. But he's like he's the comic relief character. Is that what it's supposed to be? Because I just didn't. I just thought it was <laughs> like it's like his conversations are like things that went through like Google Translate to a different <laughs> language and back. Like when he says he sees the bruise on the girl's elbow and he says, "I used to break out when I was twelve. Doctor said it was homosexual panic." <laughs> the fuck does that mean? It's a funny joke that John Carpenter wrote. When he, when people are starting to get paranoid around him, he says, am I crazy or are we stroking ourselves heavily here? <laughs> like, that's straight off of, like, Google Translate, basically. <laughs> and then the, when he's hitting on the Asian girl and he says, anyone ever tell you you could pass for Asian? Which I almost understand. <laughs> like, is the joke, is, help me, is the joke that she obviously is Asian and he's, like, riffing on that? Yes. Uh, okay. Well, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> but then when he's in the closet, he says, normally I love being dominated by women. Lisa, I'm sorry you don't look Asian at all. <laughs> I think that was just a case of John Carpenter not knowing which funny joke to choose. Right. <laughs> and neither one works on its own either, though. <laughs> And then when he's like, he hears the pounding on the wall when he's stuck in the closet and, and they're like, Walter, are you in there? And he goes, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> like, I guess to rescue you, probably, you fucking idiot. Like, what, <laughs> what response is that? You're stuck in a closet, freaked out, and you hear the voices of your rescuers and you say, what the fuck do you want? <laughs> 
Maybe he's really into being in the closet. I don't know. Is the closet the closet thing's not like a in the closet joke? Oh, uh, with it? the homosexual panic? No, I don't think that that ties together. I didn't think so either, but he is stuck in the closet for a really long time. And he made that weird homosexual panic joke earlier. No, like, think... Is there just another thing sailing over my head with this guy or what? That might be a level of humor writing a little beyond, uh, beyond John Carpenter and right. his... Right, so can't write women, can't write jokes, like, but still good writer. Definitely all the joke parts, they do have like the cadence of humor, and they come at a part in a movie where a guy might make a joke. Yeah, I think his delivery is also just mangles him too. <laughs> I think he probably, I mean, how would you deliver those lines? <laughs> He just, I don't know, he just enunciates in a certain way that makes me think that he's just, it's not, that none of the things that I think were supposed to be just like popping off the top of his head because he's riffing sounded like someone <laughs> riffing. They sounded like someone like reading a joke off of an index card or something that they didn't understand that had been translated to Chinese and back to English. <laughs> yeah, I think that to enjoy this movie, you basically have to ignore all the parts where, you know. People are talking to each other. <laughs> Which, and I say that as someone who loves this movie. Sure. But yeah, you you could mostly ignore these parts. What I do love about the cast, though, is that it's an, a real ensemble. And I like when John Carpenter makes an ensemble cast and not like a lead in, in a bunch of secondaries. Yeah, uh, it, most of the people get something to do. Most of the people, you know, get to deliver key parts of the plot on their own. And it's not just... I mean, obviously, there's kind of main characters and secondary characters to an extent, but it's it's more of an ensemble than most movies. Yeah, it felt weird through having that, you know, romantic plot and kind of trying to push those two characters into lead roles. That actually, I mean, that felt like a mistake that uh, was, you know, unnecessary. And... Uh, yeah, that kind of took away from that feel of an ensemble. You were kind of, you know, looking to those characters to have something a little more. Yeah, I think if you really just cut out their romance, then they can back down and become just as important as anybody else. No more. And, yeah. it would, and it, they, the whole thing kind of clicks better, I think. You're right. Finally, they determined Christ is crazy, but he's also gaining power, converting a lot of people to his beliefs. So they kill him. But his disciples keep the secret and hide it from civilization until man could develop a science sophisticated enough to prove what Christ was saying. Something like this can really fuck up your weekend. How did the Roman Catholic Church manage to keep this a secret for 2,000 years? Apparently a decision was made to characterize pure evil as a spiritual force, evil within the darkness in the hearts of men. As far as the story goes, John Carpenter has said that he makes two kinds of movies. He says he makes a journey film or a siege film. And I think that's a clever way of, or, or, or a nice way of putting it. And this is definitely, obviously, a siege film. It's one location. Uh, there's, the, there's the sense of trapped and claustrophobia, and, and the, the villains are, are trying to break in. The Thing, obviously, is a siege film. Yeah, Prison 13. Escape from New York is more of a journey film. That's how he puts it, and I like that. I like, I like looking at it as a siege film. Precinct 13, obviously, is a siege. Um, yeah. What do you think of the science in the movie? I, I mean, I have issues with when uh, 
someone discovers quantum physics and is <laughs> <laughs> quantum physics means anything's possible. Right. Um, but aside from that, I really liked just them, you know, basically going in with analytical equipment and kind of having all the reveals of this, the supernatural and everything coming through this analysis and all the, I mean, it, the science, I mean, it didn't, I, mean, I have no idea what they were actually supposed to be doing, but it all felt good. You know, it all kind of felt like, at least, you know, the analytical science. If you skip the fact that John Carpenter just read a thing about quantum physics and the holographic universe or whatever. Right, he claims that he read several books on theoretical <laughs> physics, which I guess means, like, he read the back covers of several books. I don't know. I, I do love, I mean, I don't know, you haven't read a lot of uh, Lovecraft, right? No, I haven't. And this is, I mean, this is a heavily, I mean, this is, you know, I think probably my favorite Lovecraft-themed movie. Huh. You know, um, it goes more. It's it gets more so in the next movie, in the Mouth of Madness, right? Which is the next the movie he made after this. Yeah, that's a very, very literally. Well, I mean, that's that's much more literally Lovecraftian, and you know, it does have tentacle monsters and insanity, and sure. you know, it really just has that cosmic horror, huh. which is you know this kind of thing that came out of you know writing in like the twenties and what this fear around scientific discovery and uh, just the idea of the uncaring universe of uh, monsters that were not, that weren't just something that wanted to eat you, but there were something just so much bigger and more uncaring. Right. Beyond our scale. Yeah. What's, what's the actor's name? Who was uh, the palsy Chinese guy? Did you call him the palsy guy? Yeah. They, in that one was going on, he had a little cer- cerebral palsy gun. Yeah, I, I originally thought it was like an affication he put on for the character, but no, I think that's that's a condition he has. It makes us, it gives his face such a distinct character. I really, oh yeah, yeah. And that guy, that guy is awesome. And and he, the, he uses it to emphasize his expressions. It's awesome. He's such a great. I forget what that called, just like physical physical actor. Mm-hmm. On the science, I kind of came down on both sides. I mean, there's moments I really liked. I really liked his lecture at the very beginning. Uh, the first part of it. Yeah, that's actually what I was um, just about to say. Um, that lecture was uh, basically just like cosmic horror. What a, I mean, that was just him explaining the genre of movie that this is. And it was I mean, relatively scientifically okay when he's just saying, "Here are these physical constants we feel are universal on su- on quantum scales. They don't hold up." Mm-hmm. And like that's right. You can say that. That's true. Almost everything after that is fucking what the bleep do we know right. stuff. <laughs> that was, though, I was trying to remember the name of that movie. Where you're just taking, like, s- extrapolating theories of physics from, like, over-literal interpretations of descriptions or, like, metaphors for physics happening on other scales. <laughs> right, fucking, holy shit, what fucking what the bleep do we know is, like, a wicked movie, like, evil. <laughs> I can't think of a movie right now that makes me madder than What the Bleep Do We Know. Like, fucking D.W. Griffith fucking apologized for Birth of a Nation. <laughs> no one has apologized to me for What the Bleep Do We Know. Um, sorry. <sighs> yeah, you've had a lot of those conversations at parties, too. Fucking A. <laughs> Maybe we could even do What the Bleep Do We Know at some point, because there's pro. <sighs> Maybe I don't even know if I could. I don't even know if I could do it. I think it's uh, the holographic universe for me. That's I mean that was the book, but uh, right. I got a lot. Of, I know a lot of people who 
Yeah. But the other thing, there's, I mean, the movie requires you to go beyond the science as we understand it, which is fine. Yeah. There's the what the bleep do we know stuff where it's like every particle has an antiparticle. So God has an anti-God or, you know, kind of nonsense stuff. But then there's other times where it does, it gets a little more Star Trek-y. Like when you mean because they said tachyons? Well, the, yeah. I mean that obviously was what triggered my memory of Star Trek. But it's also like a it's a kind of Star Trekky explanation, brought more broadly though, where you're you're beaming something back in time by sending this faster than light transmission to where the Earth was in space when you want it to arrive, and that's like good enough. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> and it's there's also the fact that uh, it's never explicitly explained as that's what it was that's true it's really speculative you know they're all scientists and they all really do act like scientists you know so it's basically just here's a theory hey audience there is a basis in science how this could be a thing right here's here's what one thing it could be that's sort of based on a real thing let's move on right and uh and i I think that's great how they never get really explicit with the science or you know because that's not going to be as fun you they really give it an, enough of a feeling of solidity that there there is science here. And, you know, I think the good part about the science is not so much there's explanations for things at the core of the movie so much as, as a character thing of rational people coming in and investigating rationally. And it really is the story of uh, of, of people who know how to look at the world in a rational way and using their tools and... It doesn't really necessarily matter what those tools are. It's, we're just—it's just letting us know that they have used them. Sure. And yeah. I, I, I like that. Yeah, I'm gonna—I'm gonna say I'm pro the science in that movie. Yeah, there's still parts that make me cringe, but a lot uh, enough of it was good to really put it above a uh, cut above what I expected. Yeah, and I just love when they used real equipment. They didn't, which is maybe a, a great thing about the low budget. I mean, I—that's one thing I absolutely hate in movies. It's like. Use a real computer to represent your computer instead of. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I, I, I like that too. Can you tell me what the Can you tell me what the guy at the with the key who died at the very beginning of the movie was doing before he died? Uh, no. Because when he dies and stops doing whatever maintenance on the canister, what happens is the green liquid starts like dribbling out of the top. Mm-hmm. Was he just going back down and tightening the lid every day? Who's <laughs> was fussing with it, you know? <laughs> when you got the ancient evil in the basement. Could we have avoided all the events of this movie by putting a cinder block on top of the canister? <laughs> <laughs> now, it can move things uh, with its mind, which is known as telekinesis. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a fun thing in the script, is whenever they mentioned a thing three or four times, it'd be like, yes, it's using... It's moving things with energy of its mind, which is called telekinesis. <laughs> telekinesis is when you move things with your mind. Yeah, Everyone got that? Moving on. Right. That and the, some of the quantum physics stuff. And you can kind of just tell in the time it came out, that was just on the cusp of the public consciousness. Whereas both those things are just so ingrained in popular consciousness now, it just <laughs> seems like over-explaining. But I'm completely willing to believe that that was just enough explanation at the time. Obviously, it starts out as a pretty scientifically grounded movie, and then, the, like you're saying, they come in contact with unexplainable phenomena and, and things, and the movie becomes more supernatural in that way. It's kind of the flow of the plot, and I like that. I like the kind of the mounting chaos of that. 
and there's some high points and some low points as it makes that transition. I think that the girl bumping her elbow on the computer and then that's suddenly she like the bruise turns into the mark and then that's how she becomes the chosen one to carry the son of the anti-god spirit is just like it's like they forgot to write in the part where she got marked (laughs) and they just like well she kind of accidentally bumps into that thing in that one take we can just make that why she gets it Uh because there's no follow through there at all right I mean, I kind of liked how stuff was unexplained, or at least it didn't bother me. I, I didn't feel sure. like, I mean, I, I I thought when they did try and explain stuff was. <laughs> um, let me let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Okay, so so tr- tr- bring into your mind the whole story of the movie, the kind of the science slash supernatural aspect, the sets, the movie set in the college, the church, and everything. And now imagine showing someone this movie without telling him what it was and, and removing the opening credits and said it was a prequel to Ghostbusters. <laughs> How far do you think they'd get into the movie before they realized you had lied to them? Um, <laughs> wait, do we still have the music? Can we rescore it? Uh, someone okay. Someone who did, had never seen a John Carpenter movie before. I think you're gonna need to rescore it in any case. <laughs> I think. Um, I think you get about ninety percent of the way through the movie. <laughs> some bits in Latin, some in Coptic, Greek numbers. It's not easy to decipher. The original text has been distorted over the years. Distorted? Rewritten. Writing upon writing, sometimes two or three times, and improperly erased. You can still see the old writing underneath. What is it? A secret that can no longer be kept. The story does spend a little time in the... How do you say it? The doldrums? The doldrums? I'll just say doldrums. The wind goes out of the story sails about two-thirds of the way through. Do, did you notice this? Like when it starts to become a more traditional horror movie? Well, is, when the gears are turning and it's, and it's things are happening, then it still works as a more traditional horror movie for me. Better than a lot of movies do that, that try and right. switch gears. But you mean, you mean about the point where... The possessions and murders start to happen. No, there's a period right after they start where nothing happens for a really fucking long time. It's like, so there's, it's the black guy gets into the mirror room with the priest, right? With the boiler in there that I guess mm-hmm. is a boiler. I didn't really. The Asian guy stuck in the closet. The possessed girl's laying in the cot. Everyone in the room is digging through the wall. And it just cycles those four shots over and over and over and over and nothing happens for a really long time yeah that's definitely on this last rewatch that's when i started looking at the internet a little bit (laughs) it just goes it's like it's seriously like there was an accident with a copy machine and they made 15 copies of one page of the script and nobody noticed when they were shooting it yeah i was actually kind of they were shooting the same page 15 times you know i bet i i bet when i first saw it the thing about watching horror movies now is you know i don't have that visceral actually you know frightened moment and i remember i mean watching it as a kid that's where that real siege movie thing comes in 
Yeah. If you are having a more visceral reaction to the movie, that's, you know, where the claustrophobia and the fear and everything is supposed to be building. Like it kind of is dawning on you, the situation they're in. Yeah, and just... And so it's allowing a little bit of breathing room there for that to happen, maybe? It's hard to watch horror movies when the horror part is not still part of the the fun or the experience. But yeah, that definitely was on this last rewatch where I sort of tuned out. Even when the even when the horror is not actually like horrifying, John Carpenter brings such I don't know how to how to quite put it. He brings such a human touch and cleverness to the craftsmanship of the effects and the things he does trying to do just as on a pure, like, I want to make a movie as a project level. So even in that boring period, I was noticing the makeup on the girl is slowly worsening and worsening, which they did really subtly. <laughs> they tried to have a little bit of a detour with a, they drop the guy out the window into the alley, but I don't really get why. And then they just yank him back <laughs> up again. Him back up what was like... the point? I don't even know what they were trying to do there, but I guess just to make something happen. Well, no, I mean, I think it was supposed, you know, it was the escape attempt. I mean, that's what, you know, Assault on Precinct 13 was just all that, you know, <laughs> trying to escape and the escape failing. I'd, uh... I don't know. It's it, it, He just drops in and then looks both ways and there's crowds at both ways. And then he looks at the fence that's in his way and then he just turns around and jumps back up. It's like he could have gleaned all that information by not jumping <laughs> out the window, too. Right. Uh... Maybe he was supposed to take a run at the hobos and get pushed back or maybe something else. I don't yeah. Know. I mean, I definitely understand it's point as a plot beat there kind of the walls closing in a little more yeah that's the moment that they realize they really aren't you know until then they've been talking about maybe just getting out and just you know just running away and sure pretending this isn't happening and this is this is the first moment they actually try and leave and to try and leave and realizing they're totally surrounded um okay i I can see that scene's purpose a little better i i still think it didn't it but it was just guys that it, it was really a, like stupid behavior though on, on cam- <laughs> as filmed it was pretty clumsy yeah that i mean that felt like maybe one of the times where the uh where you could see that you could see the low budget i mean this movie was made for three million dollars yeah and it really i mean doesn't show that throughout most of the movie i, I mean it really doesn't feel low budget you're right it doesn't john carpenter is i think is is a is great i think he's kind of a darling for producers because of that is my guess because he, his movies make money. Yeah. And, they, um, they don't cost much, and they're pretty consistent moneymakers, I think. And he's willing to stick his neck out a little bit or try new things or come up with his own ideas about how effects can be pulled off or how shots can be pulled off. Yeah, and he doesn't... One really uh, one thing I was noticing on this last rewatch is he's just such... You know, the way he shoots is just so traditional and so, you know, craftsman-like, and it really works. I mean, he just has this really great sense of space and uh, pacing but it's really i mean it's super traditional it's just like yeah it's really it's pretty utilitarian yeah i mean there's not he uses so few pans and when he does use them i mean he really uses them to affect there's you know just a lot of establishing shot mid shot close up there's, there's a some lot of, there's uh, some good dolly work i was really noticing there's when the the guy we were talking about earlier when he walks in the dolly follows him through the entire kind of church main area which is mm-hmm. nice a nice dolly pan when they're all uh, a pan and dolly shot where they're all kind of huddled around the table and the priest is kind of laying out the whole story from his perspective for everybody but you're right they're used real sparingly and to good effect and never kind of for its own sake we were talking about the hobos kind of surrounding the building as being kind of the the wall around the building that kind of makes it a siege film or a claustrophobic yeah but the hobos themselves i thought 
Well, I think it's more just in the writing. There was some schizophrenia came up a couple times in a way that I thought was really a fucking offensive. It was definitely weird and unnecessary. Like there's the girl is, is she's like looking out the window at the guys just standing there and she's like, schizophrenics have a, have a 20 minute routine they have to keep like a stuck record. (laughs) Like what? Like, first of all, what? And second of all, you're all you all you can see with your eyeballs is that these is that these people are probably homeless. Yeah, what, you get to diagnose them as schizophrenic, like just because of that. I don't get it. If it, it felt like there was maybe something that in the script that didn't make it into the the reason that these people were so susceptible to the influence was that they were schizophrenic. Sure, and that maybe that had been discussed before. Yeah, I th- it's I kind of found that offensive. It, it and then in the little... credits, Alice Cooper was credited as street, street schizo. <laughs> schizo. Uh, yeah. And Alice Cooper. I mean, since we since we brought up Alice Cooper, weirdest murder I've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> when he gets him with the bicycle. <laughs> Where he fucking stabs him with a bicycle. <laughs> yep. That is the fucking weirdest way I've ever seen anyone get murdered in a movie. Why did he stab him with a bicycle, Aaron? <laughs> Tell me. Actually, I, I looked. I looked that up. Oh, was there? Is there a story? The story is Alice Cooper, the musician slash performer, stabs people with a bicycle on stage as part of his act. Oh, and so John Carpenter let him write that into his own character. But it gives it, that gets me absolutely nowhere in understanding why. <laughs> Someone's getting stabbed with a bicycle is an idea that even exists in the world. Um, speaking of the Prince of Darkness, or uh, I guess actually this would be the King of Darkness, <laughs> the Prince of Darkness's dark dad, uh, the anti-god. Right. Their description of him as being the magical evil force that infuses and controls all things doesn't really prepare you for the bright red cartoon Satan that he is. <laughs> Yeah, that fucking sticks out, doesn't it? Because John Carpenter is so is is really one of the most inventive guys in horror movies, especially in 80s, 90s horror. He's so fucking clever and inventive, and he's so good at showing us things we've never seen before that when the devil's hand is just like the devil's hand, it's such a letdown. And especially of course the movie orbits around that guy coming through into our reality being the the big the worst possible thing that could happen that's what the entire purpose of everybody's motivation is to keep that from happening so it's built up a lot but then it's just like a leftover prop from some other movie yeah just making that a physical being at all is is already dumb (laughs) maybe although if it was some like writhing like if it was some remember the creature from the thing some manifestation of that where it's like technically and greasy and whippy and yeah, fucked up think... in some way. Just make it anything but a cartoon <laughs> hand of the devil. Yeah. But the rest, almost across the board, the rest of the effects were so good. And this is something I was thinking when you were talking about how it's harder to watch movies that scared you when you were younger or harder, harder to watch movies that just don't really affect you that way when it's a horror movie and you don't feel horrified. Mm-hmm. You can st- there's still so much joy in appreciating the craftsmanship that goes into some of these effects. Oh yeah, that's uh... and of course John Carpenter is so is a a leader like a hero to our childhood selves in that area. 
like watching how he makes movies this is this also ties a little bit into when i was thinking about what kind of person he he was and how you kind of watching his movies get the sense of what kind of person he is and it's it's like a kid who gets to gets to play with props and and toys and effects and just is so in love with the process and and that really is who he is yeah he's such a craftsman his movie making process just makes me think of you know your dorkier woodchuck dad yeah it makes you think that you can make movies (laughs) and and it really just it feels like i mean recognizing how an effect is done it's really not like seeing through a magician Right, like it doesn't spoil the trick; it it adds to it. I oh, a- absolutely! You know, I I had a subscription to Fangoria when I was a kid, and seeing the behind the scenes, and then, yeah, I mean, just all that much much more magical. The guy who is in pieces, being held together by the swarming beetles in his suit, mm-hmm. that is such a wonderful visual. The sound design on his voice, like that moment, made me think like this is why I love watching movies, uh, and it's such a clever idea and everything. I wish he had been a little more explicitly dismembered in his death scene, so it made a little more sense mm-hmm. that he was bits of a person being held together by these beetles. And and again, budget, you know. Yeah. You know, I do, do have a feeling if he had a few more billions of dollars, there'd be a, some uh, some more awesome gruesome deaths written in. <laughs> but there's a couple. There's a couple more. There's the um, when the liquid is flying into the girl's eyes and mouth from the ceiling is such a great effect it's a great idea it's great execution on that oh, God, that whole set uh, that set and that prop i just love yeah and then th- this is this is not as much of an effect shot i mean it is an effect shot but it's it's not as quite as clever but the the very the very last shot of the heroine after she goes through the mirror mm-hmm. as she's being pulled down she's reaching for the kind of the the window the portal and it's it darkens around her easily the best shot in the movie her expression is so good the the kind of glacial movement in the shot is so good that that transcended any budget i thought that movie was so good yeah the the whole all the mirror and beyond the mirror stuff i mean that that all just felt pretty magical it was uh and you know i mean i think i mean it was all just water right it was just no camera no well, the uh, every shot where the camera is on the other side, it is water. They tarped the right, swimming right. pool. But every the shots where people are reaching into the mirror, it's <laughs> This is fucking John Carpenter do a T in my mind. He he knows how he's going to do every effect that he writes into the movie except for that one mm-hmm. when he's writing this movie. And they get to that point and they have no fucking budget left and he has to do it. But they have like a crane and some other kind of like heavy industrial equipment around. And in some way, those things in their hydraulics are using liquid mercury. (laughs) And they fucking siphon out the liquid mercury from the stuff that they rented, like secretly. And, And they make those little pools of mercury. And then they use those for the shots where... She's reaching her fingers into the compact mirror mm-hmm. and then reaching the entire arm into the giant thing. That's all mercury they like illegally drained from the equipment they were renting. And then they like injected it back into the equipment before they returned it. That's fantastic. And I think they shot roughly in sequence and stuff. And so it was both running out of like what they had planned for and also running out of budget. And, and they made it work. And it doesn't show at all when you're watching the movie that that was a real spur of the moment improvised solution to that shot. 
So how about that dream sequence? That was pretty good, right? You're right. We didn't even fucking talk about that yet. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's the thing that probably everyone who's seen the movie remembers, or at least... Uh, it seems, and, and, and for the, you know, we were talking before about how we'd heard, I don't know, did you hear clips of that in songs and other sampled places before you had seen the movie or after? Um, I probably, no, I, I, I must have seen the movie first. I don't think I recognized it like the first time you guys huh. probably a Marilyn Manson song and then right. the DJ Shadow song. And was there a third? Not that I'm aware of. Um, it holds up so well. It's really perfect. Like, there's no... I, I can't imagine how those shots could have been improved. The the voice effect is so great. It it even, like, even hence holds up a little bit to scrutiny. Like, if you're trying to picture how these are being transmitted into people's minds, it works that there's that little bit of warbliness in the pitch and everything. But but just purely as, like, an effect and, and, and an, an impression they make on you as the viewer, they're so good. I found myself really mad at the characters. Like... Why don't you just go to sleep and listen to the whole message, you fucking idiot? <laughs> but on on kind of reflection, it's more that I was so like thirsty for more of that shot and more of that effect that I was just like projecting onto the characters that I wanted them to do that. <laughs> so- and we get they give us just the right about, you know. I think it's yeah, repeated maybe exactly. four or five times, and you just get a little further in it each time, and mm-hmm. yeah, you do get just really. You really want to, and I think they describe, you know, the figure coming out of the door a, a few times before you see it, so you know, you know that's coming. Yeah, and then, and then it's a it's a great reveal, and it's uh, in the last thirty seconds of the movie, you finally, yeah, do get that, get the whole thing, and it's great. Yeah, I yeah, love they, the last thirty seconds of that movie are just great. I love that last shot. I like how he s- slowly strokes his mustache for reassurance before he reaches <laughs> out to the mirror. <laughs> Oh, that mustache. We haven't mentioned that either yet. <laughs> Do you know who the voiceover was in the dream sequences? Mm-mm. John Carpenter. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't couldn't have been improved. He also said in the commentary track that when he wakes up next to the bloody nightmare version of the girl, he's like, yeah, that was kind of cheap. <laughs> yeah. It, it, yeah, I definitely wished. Because it would have been such a perfect ending without that. If it was, you know, it's just true. Although it did get me, going I don't know. Yeah. But but we were talking. We we had a good little chat in the cabin in the woods episode about how you kind of feel a little resentful towards the movie after it pulls one of those on you, and I think he knows that. But. Yeah, and also like the strength of this movie was definitely not in its jumps or its kills or you know the kind of traditional. Right, it never does that. You know that the you know it does that feeling of mounting discomfort and dread and that Mm -hmm. uh, you know i think that's really i i feel like a much more effective thing than uh you know the the cat jump or whatever sure as people in the beginning as people are starting to get picked off they're getting picked off in isolation and so the rest of the group doesn't quite realize what's happening although also on their own they're sort of starting to realize that there is something awry or there is something malicious going on here the turning point where everybody in the cast realizes something is really like fucking off the rails is the scene with the swarming beetles mm-hmm. uh, in in the in the man's embodying the man delivering the message, and and so that's like a real pivotal moment in the movie, and of course it it in itself I, like I was saying before it's the effect is perfect the sound design is perfect, but then what John Carpenter does that's that I I'm so in love with and I, and I really appreciate is that that 
he doesn't really revel in that that he did that 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 pivot has happened so well he just before you can even catch your breath they turn around from the window and there's a whole new crazy shit happening which is the um black guy coming up the stairs with the chair and he's singing and then now it's like well now what the fuck is going on here <laughs> like oh i just i can't i've just barely started to cope with the last thing and now it's like a whole another unrelated chaotic thing happening and he can pile it on like that and and it's he doesn't he doesn't really coast on on what he he did it's like now shit's really going off the rails and things are going to be stacking on top of each other and on top of yeah each other. once you get that momentum yeah you just have to use it and uh, yeah yeah you don't want to you don't want to let go of that momentum until you've really gotten everything you can <laughs> yeah i love i love it on a scale of one to ten where would you put john carpenter's prince of darkness um higher than it deserves <laughs> i think no i i, I think I, me too i really do yeah i i really do love this movie i this i think there's a lot of things about it and uh maybe this is what i should have talked about but uh it does things that no other movie really has done well maybe not it's uh it just has it's got a good creeping dread it, it all uh something something blah 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 eight <laughs> I don't know. There's a way that a movie can really not do things technically perfect, but still have cultivate a, a fondness for the movie in you. Mm-hmm. And I think this, e- even as someone like you said, you you watched it when you were like much younger and more impressionable. And John Carpenter's just like exactly what you the kind of guy you want giving you movies at that age. Oh, absolutely. And I hadn't seen it before. I've only watched it now at the age of 31. And, but I still immediately can see and, and feel the, the fondness. Like, that's a kind of movie, I don't know. You know, there's like, John Carpenter reminds me of a kid with a, for his first video camera. <laughs> and he's just imagining all the possibilities. And he just wants to find out ways to do it and have fun. He, he wants to make movies with his friends, it feels like. And that, and that shines through, I think. And John Carpenter's movies, I think, are across the board. Art can be elevated by that sense of this is for the love of filmmaking that these movies are being made. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I also like this is one of those movies, and I think probably a lot of his movies are, uh, you know, the, the movie's great, but I really love the movie that you that he's trying to make. Like, you know, he, he doesn't necessarily have the resources to make that film, but... Like I feel like his vision for what the movie is supposed to be is just just so clear that even when when he doesn't actually quite have the resources to do it, he gets across what he wanted to do. Yeah, <laughs> and I feel like I really love the movie, the really ideal movie that he wanted to make with this movie would was is such a good movie. And and that he's so and that he's willing to do the work, you know, like mm-hmm. he's he writes it, he directs it, he works like real hands on with the cast he scores it you know it's you can tell he is willing to do the work to bring the, his idea to fruition and it's and it's about he gets asked in the director's commentary what's your favorite part of making movies and this, his answer kind of surprised me and it's when it's done and you get to just watch it <laughs> yeah what i mean yeah what he does is is work yeah it's craft yeah, and and it's incredibly inspirational. I think the face of uh, uh, thriller and horror movies would be just so completely different if he had never 
been a, a filmmaker. We love you, John Carpenter. Ooh. I have a what might be a scratch and sniff scratch off lottery ticket here. Uh, are you supposed to match the smells? Because <laughs> that would be kind of clever. That would be pretty fucked if that was the case. You'd because... Get a lot of a uh, lot of people bringing that thing in. <laughs> so, no, it's, uh, it's banana. <laughs> Come on, it's banana. It's fucking banana. Don't <laughs> jerk me around. Yeah, I would be fucked if you had to match the smells because I'm sure, as you can tell by my voice, I'm all congested right now, and it would be useless to me. All right, for Scratch and Sniff Coffee Cash, the top prize is $10,000. Cross your fingers. Are your fingers crossed? Uh, maybe. Okay. Yes. I guess it smells a little bit like something. <laughs> the winning symbols The winning symbols are cake, book, and sugar cube. So I guess these are all meant mm-hmm. to be coffee shop accoutrements or something. We have coffee pot, cookies, spoon, croissant, sandwich, cupcake, donut, glasses, pie, and cell phone. Well, that's bullshit. I guess we won nothing. <sighs> You're really not holding up your end of this uh, scratch. Oh, wait. Was this both of us? This one. <laughs> yeah, don't blame me. This one's both of us. Uh, well, you really fucked up the caddy thing. <laughs> you were way better at these than me. <laughs> we haven't really talked, I don't think, about the next movie. That we're gonna do. All right. Um, you have on the list that you sent me. You have Watchmen for next week. I would be delighted for Watchmen to be the next one. Sure, uh, I, I would totally do that. Well, great. That was pretty easy. Cool. <laughs> what do you remember about Watchmen, the movie? I didn't dislike it as much as I thought I would. Zack Snyder, that's the director, right? Yeah, who I'm. Yeah, never, never been much of a fan. I didn't pay a lot of attention when I watched Watchmen. Huh. I, I'm the one who watches the Watchmen. <laughs> I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of the book. I mean, I think it was really good, but I'm just not a comic book guy at all. I don't, I, I have issues reading comic books. I can't pace the action correctly in my head. And so, huh. Do you think that uh, Watchmen as a comic was really, and, and this is completely, like I said, I've never read the comic, but um, it seemed almost like it was a comic for comic book fans. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, in the so way much that like, Cabin in the Woods was kind of a horror movie for horror movie fans that sort of yeah. played with the tropes of the genre. Yeah, I mean, it was, was a, you know, that real deconstruction of what a superhero is in a way I think we've probably seen a lot of recently and, and probably, and a real critique, and I think in a lot of ways, a specific critique of of Frank Miller and of the kind of uh, crypto-fascist superhero ideas. uh, But it was also just something that really, really played with a lot of the ideas of what comic books as a medium was, like visually and with, uh, you know, a lot of really amazing things with just the layout. Yeah, I I would definitely be interested in... uh, and watching the movie and paying a little more attention to it. Um, it seems like the challenge is when you're shifting mediums, you're losing some of the message. Because if it's a comic book kind of about comic books and explicitly about exploring aspects of the medium in, in a physical way, that some of that, there's just no way to translate. I, I think you lose a ton of it. And I think it's also, I think a lot of the politics kind of got lost 
I think, I mean, it's interesting that he was a guy who had previously been adapting, you know, Frank Miller stuff, which is, and, you know, Alan Moore, I think, specifically hates Frank Miller and hates Frank Miller's <laughs> politics and just, just like, that guy's just a fascist douche. Oh, what the director had been adapting Frank Miller stuff before. You know, he did... Uh, 300. Uh, 300 and uh, Sin City. Oh, right. Okay. And so to go from that to doing Alan Moore, and particularly against Alan Moore's wishes. Fucking A. I didn't realize that it's a whole meta narrative think, around this movie. Know, I think Alan Moore still had a lot of rights to it. I'm not sure exactly, but, you know, he could have got paid for it, and it was just like, fuck you. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take the money. Huh. Uh, gave, gave all the money to the artist just because he didn't want the movie to be made. <laughs> I mean, you've heard him talk, right? I don't think I have. Man, you should just get, just hear him talk. <laughs> like with video, because he's a crazy old beardy wizard. Like he's a guy who just <laughs> smokes so much pot that he literally decided that he wanted to be a wizard. Like pretty much not like he believed in magic and so much and wanted to be a wizard, but like he thought he should believe in magic and so he should be a wizard. And now he's a professional wizard. What what is Gandalf smoke in in Lord of the Rings? A uh, pipe weed. What is uh Bob Dobbs smoke? Um, frop. Frop. You're right. Okay, you passed the quiz. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is Alan Moore smoke? Uh, marijuana. Fucking marijuana. A lot of fucking marijuana. <laughs> oh man. And uh, yeah, I like him a lot. I mean, I think his his comics are probably great, but. I mostly just like him as well, a guy. despite the fact that I think that there's there's inevitably something you can't translate to film when you're making a comic that's really like playing off of comic tropes in in a real specific way that's specific to the to the physical characteristics of a comic book. Again, someone not having read the comics myself, but um, something that I think did translate to the screen is that these characters are. There's been a lot of good superhero movies. But there's never been one where 30 minutes into the movie, I was still kind of like, I don't quite get where this person's coming from. Or there's an aspect to this character I just <laughs> that's deeper than I expected or, or that I'm still kind of trying to come to grips with. And there's several characters like that in Watchmen. I don't really I don't know if we've watched, watched, watched a movie that we really could have a good argument about yet, so... Aaron, thanks again for doing this with me. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk to you like this. And, um, and I'm looking forward to coming back next week and talking about Watchmen. Woo! I will watch that movie. And if you want to watch that movie, uh, you can visit us at inthecut.org and see all the ways that you can watch Watchmen before uh, you come back. You can be the one who watches the Watchmen. You can be the one who watches the Watchmen. That was a pretty good joke the first time I said it. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm going to tack on a brief note about the next movie here. Watchmen is definitely a comic book movie, and it's set in an alternate universe with superheroes and everything. However, it does contain a scene that involves an attempted rape, and it's not the most brutal thing ever committed to film, and again, the whole thing takes place in a pretty comic booky context. But it is a subject that appears both in the film and in our discussion of it. And I wanted anybody who may be sensitive to that type of material to know that ahead of time. So that's it. Little heads up. And thank you so much for listening. And I'll talk to you soon.